sectors. And so uh, we're going to address three critical con confrontations that I think uh, every believer must face. But as we do that, uh, before we do that, let's have a word of prayer together. Our God, thank you so much for uh, just your provision, your kindness. Um, God, your grace. Uh, we don't deserve any of it. Um, in fact, we, we deserve uh, the full extent of the opposite. And yet, in your grace, you have spared us, you have redeemed us, you can re have reconciled us to our Creator, um, and we are eternally grateful. And I do pray that that gratitude and that, um, God, just that, that awareness and that sensitivity would guide each and every uh, one of our steps as we follow after your Son. Um, God, that you would use um, the time that we have today uh, to draw us to empathy, to draw us to compassion, uh, to draw us to um, whatever we need to overcome or to endure or to, um, um, to experience so that you might be the primary aim of everything that we do. So with God, we entrust these things to your hands, uh, knowing that you will do with it um, what you see fit. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start today um, by just calling out something that I think a lot of you know, because most of you live in Terre Haute, many of you have lived here for a long time. Um, there's a lot of subcultures, and there's definitely kind of this underground thing that we try to avoid, right? So let me go ahead and just try to explain it to you, and sometimes you can't miss it. Uh, me and my girls, we were driving around the other day, um, just driving around Terre Haute, and these are just some of the scenes that we came across, right? Some of them are humorous, um, so feel free to laugh, but just so you know, um, today's about compassion, um, and so the harder you laugh, the more guilty you're going to feel like two minutes later, okay? Um, one of those things, uh, we were just driving and we saw uh, some people, two different people on two separate occasions walking down 25th, dancing and singing out of their minds, like just to themselves, out of their minds as they were walking down the sidewalk, which is, I don't know, maybe they're just having a good day. We also saw a guy who was strumming a guitar, like, passionately, but there were no strings on the guitar, just by himself walking down the street. We saw this um, incredibly enormous person on a mobility scooter riding down the middle of the street with a few big gulps um, that they were holding, right? Um, which, again, Terre Haute, like mobility scooters is like a main form of transportation in Terre Haute. Um, it's the only place I've ever seen it. We also saw a homeless man standing on a corner and he was holding a cardboard sign, but he had some kind of issue where his hands were like violently shaking. He could barely hold the cardboard up and he had a hard time walking. I mean, these are just like scenes that you see almost every day. And if you're like me, right? If you're like me, then it's kind of easy to just kind of laugh it off, um, to just shrug it off, to kind of ignore it. Really anything to ignore the sensitivity that might come when we realize that most of these things that we see, they're a shallow glimpse into this underground of a community devastated by drugs, uh, devastated by mental illness, devastated by violence, devastated by poverty, by abuse. Many of you know this well. It's actually your profession of addressing this community in these ways. But on a spiritual level, I would say many of us take it further. So again, if you are like me, some of us might encounter these kinds of situations and then begin to pray even in our hearts like, God, thank you for giving me a different situation than what you've given them. And we mean it well, I think, but if we're not careful, it could become kind of like the Luke 18 prayer. 
where the Pharisees pray, or the rich man, uh, or no, the Pharisees praying, and he's saying, God, thank you for not making me like these other people, the greedy and the unrighteous and the adulterers and the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get, right? He says, God, thank you for not making me like them. Thank you for making me more righteous than them. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to see three different confrontations within this story in Mark chapter 5 that I think are are, are quite critical to our spiritual growth and formation as we seek to follow Christ with our lives. And, And the first confrontation is this. It's the confrontation of depravity. And in pride, the people of the world, they're very slow to this confrontation, right? You go up to anybody and say, hey, man, you're a depraved, sinful person. And they'll be like, okay, dude, back off. Like, it's not, uh, you know, it's not a great conversation starter. But it's also one of those confrontations that I think a lot of Christians in pride are quick to forget. And so here's the point. Today, what we have in our view is a case of human depravity and sin that is pretty unmatched. Like it's, it's so grotesque and so filled with evil. And as we look at the story, instead of thanking God for how righteous we are, instead of thanking God for making us not like him, not like other people like this, we need to understand that this story is a picture of your heart and it's a picture of my heart. And you're better than no one and neither am I. The people that we see on the streets, the people that are out there, the people that we are inclined to scoff at and be judgmental towards, the only difference between you and them is Jesus. And what that should do to your heart is not fill it with gratitude that you're not them. It should fill your heart with compassion and empathy so that people might uh, come to know Jesus. Right? So a little heavy-handed at the start here, but I promise this is good. This is encouraging. We want the Lord to do a work here uh, so that he can trigger our hearts towards the direction it needs to go. And so we're going to read this passage again, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. I'm going to invite Travis up, who's going to read uh, this passage. If you're using a black Bible um, that's near you, that's page 891. And again, 20 verses here. So if you could, would you stand in honor of reading God's word this morning? morning, Travis. Morning, church. Mark 5. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torture me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, 
and people came to see what, uh, what it was that had, ju- that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And now he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Awesome. Thank you, Travis. You can have a seat. So the first um, uh, encounter, the first um, confrontation that we must um, address is just the issue of depravity. And like I said, depravity, sin, we see the full picture here in this passage. And again, I think this is, I think personally, this is a pretty unique passage as far as just the picture, the grotesque picture of, of um, depravity. And so just to remind you of what Pastor Brett spoke about last week, um, we're not going to spend too much time on it, but I want to look at it again just to be resensitized to this. There is a man, right, who has been possessed by not one, but many from the scriptures, right? That, that seems to be the implication that there are many demons within this person. And he is in the burial grounds or in the tombs, which is a place where the demented would go in that time. Now, this demon-possessed man, he had been restrained with shackles and chains, and those usually come with all kinds of sores and, and uh, you know, painful things on the body. And he was able to smash them because he had a supernatural strength, which is creepy to think about. But he was filled with demons, and he had the strength. He could do that. Now, in our account here in Mark, it seems like this was uh, restraints from the people around him. They were trying to restrain him. If you read Luke's account of this story, it almost sounds like it was self-restraint. It almost sounds like maybe this thing came in episodes, and, you know, at its worst, he would try to restrain himself. But either way, it was to no avail. Right? Either way, it was to no avail. It's probably the combination of both. And so he's in the tombs. At its worst, he's in the tombs. He's cutting himself with rocks. And he's crying out, which in the Greek, this, uh, this word really means more of a shriek or a moan. My guess is he sounds more like a demon than a man when he's crying out. The other gospel accounts, by the way, they say this man was not just physically depraved and all of these signs that we're looking at. It says that he was actually violent. Imagine a man covered in open wounds and sores, demon-possessed, and he seeks to harm you, all right? If you're passing by, he wants to come and hurt you. Imagine how terrifying that would be. And so he seeks harm. He has violence. And this is just the start because demons don't just stroll into anyone at any point in time. Right? So the, the picture of depravity is pretty grim and pretty grotesque, but it's also pretty indicative of a pretty grotesque, grotesque status of his heart beforehand. Like I said, demons don't just stroll wherever. There was probably an invitation. This man was probably dabbling in some dark things that he shouldn't have been dabbling in. His spirit, his soul, they were not in a good condition ahead of this time. Somehow he made his life open to demonic infestation. And when Brett was preaching about this last week, um, uh, I remember there was a moment where uh, the great theologian Kenzie Connor leaned over, a.k.a. my wife, leaned over, and she just kind of noted the remarkable capacity for a man to possess such evil. 
Now, you know the story, right? God cast these <laughs> demons out into the pigs, and the pigs didn't seem to be able to tolerate it, right? They went and drowned themselves in the sea. But somehow a man is able to possess a ton of it and tolerate it. What is that about? What is this human capacity for such evil? And this is the issue of depravity that we must all confront because I think it's very easy for established Christians to become so detached from their own depravity, right, that we forget that we too are depraved. We forget that we too have been and are filled with sin. And on those terms, we are level with everyone and we are better than no one. A lot of times we offer humanitarian aid, we sponsor kids, we go on mission trips, we donate to ministries, we give food and resources, but sometimes we do it from a level up, forgetting that gospel empathy only moves horizontally when we're all on the same level. It's like trying to restrain a demon-possessed man with chains and shackles for his own safety. We try to restrain poverty and sickness with handouts that make us feel better, but they don't address the main issue. What's the main issue? In Romans chapter 3, we see verses 10 and 11, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. This is you. This is me. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have it. We're all broken. We're all on the same level. The main issue is sin. The main issue is that we are depraved and we are in need of healing. And the only spiritual difference between me and any doped out, violent, out of his mind streetwalker or demon-possessed man is that I have Jesus. And this should fill my heart with compassion and empathy, not gratitude that I'm not them. It should fill my heart with a gospel-sized empathy and compassion. Of course, I am grateful for the opportunities that I've had in life. Like, I am grateful for the privileges that I've had. I've had loving and faithful parents. Praise God. This is awesome, and it's kind of a hard commodity to find these days. I've had a hardworking father who kept our home afloat. I had opportunities with school and athletics, but these are not the measure of a person. These are not the measure of anything. Certainly in terms of human depravity, they offer nothing. A good athlete doesn't reveal a good heart. Making lots of money and being successful and having nice things, this doesn't reveal anything about your heart. Our hearts all have the same broken condition. The only difference is that Jesus, that is that I have Jesus, and many of you do too. And this should motivate us to empathy and compassion because he's the only answer. He's the only cure. There is nothing else that works. Sports, money, success, health, self-image, religion, they are nothing. Like literally, they're just nothing when it comes to this, when it comes to offsetting human depravity. But you know what? It doesn't keep us from trying, does it? It doesn't keep us from trying. And perhaps you're here and you pride yourself on a, on a nice aesthetic you like to look good, you like to have nice things, you appear successful and probably religious and healthy and active, and listen, this is all good, I'm, I'm working towards these things as well. But we all know that even in the church, there are people who pride themselves in these things because this is actually their way of confronting the deeper, darker things going on in their soul. 
Some of the best-looking, most put-together people are ravaged by fear, by insecurity, by deviancy in their hearts. And if we live our lives this way, then the spiritual rot only continues to fester. We have got to quit confronting our sin with physicalities and aesthetics. We have got to quit leveling ourselves and others based on how things look. We've got to understand that each one of our hearts carries the same grotesque capacity for evil as anyone else's. We've got to confess these things to the Lord and invite him in to beg his forgiveness, to remember that the grotesque nature of our hearts is why Jesus' death had to be so grotesque, that the reason that you are healed and cured is because Jesus was completely broken, his body ripped open, and he bled out on a cross. That's what we look like before Christ. And he saved us and he has redeemed us. And if we try to address this thing in any other way, it's just going to rot. It's just going to fester. But we need to be overwhelmed by his grace once again, to become attached once again to the fact that we are nothing, we deserve nothing, we have nothing apart from Jesus, and neither does anyone else. And we've got to do something about that. The next confrontations build on top of that. So I wanted to take that moment to address that. The next confrontation is one that I would say many people struggle with on a regular basis. They're always in this confrontation, and it's a confrontation of fear, of fear, right? And so to catch you up on the story, Jesus casts out these demons into the pigs. They go to their death in the sea, right? And then the herdsmen or or the, you know, the, the, the pig shepherds, they go to the town and then they report everything, right? And this is the response that we see of, of the people starting in verse 14. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon possessed sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs, and then they began to beg him, Jesus, to leave their region, which is a heartbreaking verse, verse 17. They begged Jesus to leave their region. So what we have here is a confrontation of fear. The townspeople, the people from the countryside, they see everything that's happened. They see the man in his right mind. They see Jesus, who is the one who did it, and the result is a fear that makes them want Jesus to get away, like, like leave us, you know? Now, in the scriptures, there's one word that talks about two different kinds of fear, right? The word for afraid here comes from the Greek word phobos, which we get the word phobia from. Phobia is just this constant fear, right? And we typically think about it in a negative term, but that's the same word actually used to talk about a good, healthy fear, the fear of the Lord, right? And I don't think that should be understood in the way that we would typically understand it, which is just the crippling phobia that is ongoing. But I do think the constancy of it is good because the constancy of phobia is that it never leaves. And so for God to be our chief and primary fear means that it's always there. There's nothing greater than him. And I think it shouts to his sovereignty, which is a good thing. And it sparks humility. It sparks reverence. Um, And it sparks even love in the relationship. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we read about this, this fear, but in the context, we see that it's a really good and healthy thing. Acts 9, 31, so the church throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. 
right? It was a critical part of the vibrancy of the early church that there would be a fear of the Lord. And the same is true even now, that there would be no one or anything that would take that place of, of being the chief fear, the chief place of reverence and awe, the chief humility inspirer, right? That's God. He alone is in that place. But for anything else that's less than him, that fear becomes crippling, and it becomes something that is spiritually hurtful to your soul. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, for example, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Right? There is a fear that is spiritually enriching, and there is a fear that puts you back into slavery. And as long as the fear goes to God, then it's good. If it goes anywhere else, it's going to kill you. Fear of anything else, especially a fear of law-keeping, fear of the perceptions and standards of others, these are spiritually hindering to following after Christ. And context is important, right? Sometimes you see the word, you don't really know if it's healthy or hurtful, right? For example, if we stopped at the end of verse 15 where we read, um, they came to Jesus, saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid, then maybe if you just stop there and don't read 16 and 17, you might think, cool, like, they're piecing it together, right? They see this man that's been healed. Jesus is there. And so they have this reverence and they have this awe about who Jesus is. And they're one step closer to understanding what it really means that Jesus is son of the God most high, which was the profession of the demons, right? They're getting it. They're starting to see it. Which, by the way, you can tell if the fear is good or bad based on whether they draw to or from Jesus. If the fear is good, it's drawing you to Jesus, if it's bad, it's drawing you away from Jesus. I'm a firm believer that really anything in your life that is uncertainty, that is struggle, that if it causes you to draw near to Jesus, that you're going to be better as a result of that thing, whatever it is. That it's going to produce a spiritual health for you. In this case, however, unfortunately, they withdraw from Jesus, right? Because we read with broken heart in verse 17 that they began to beg him to leave their region. And I would say perhaps even more concerning is verse 18. That they decided to be blind and Jesus just got in the boat and left. That Jesus was said, just simply said, okay, he didn't fight him on it. He didn't preach another sermon. He didn't try to convince him. Like, no, 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 what happened here is really, really good. He is actually really healed. And like, like I know your pigs just drowned, and that's probably going to be a little bit of an economic toll, but totally worth it for this guy to be restored and healed. He didn't fight him on it. He didn't stay. He didn't linger. He's like, okay. Why? Because he knows. He knew in that moment where their hearts were. Their hearts were revealed for where they were. And though Jesus can do anything, and we believe this, it became clear in this moment, and I think this is very telling, that he was more willing to cast out a legion of demons than he was a legion of fear. And I think that speaks a lot to how serious fear is. Because if it causes us to withdraw from Jesus, it reveals a lack of faith. It reveals a poor understanding of his sufficiency and of his peace. It reveals a condition of our hearts that is consumed with pride, which is, by the way, the center point, the center point of depravity and of sin. And so what I'm advocating here is just base level, that in your times of uncertainty, in your times of fear, in your times of struggle, 
take very seriously where you run. Run to God. Run to prayer. Run to the arms of Christ. Run to your spiritual brothers and sisters. Run to your church community. Run to the word. Run to anything and everything that is going to point you to Jesus. And it will produce spiritual health to your bones. You are on away from God or you try anything else and what you are inviting is just spiritual nothingness. You're inviting pain. You're inviting deeper stress and deeper anxiety. So often, we, we, we start to chase Jesus, this, you know, not as the first pursuit, not as the second, not even as the third or fourth. He's the very last thing we get to in times of struggle, isn't he? First, I'm going to try it all myself, and then I'm going to expect other people to do it. And when I just fail after fail after fail, and, and, and life just continues to boil, then when I'm at rock bottom, then I'll finally ask God to come and do something. And you could spare yourself a ton of angst and a ton of stress by just going to him first and trusting him first. He should be our first affection and our first pursuit when we are confronted with fear. And listen, if we don't seek him first, not only is this very telling of our hearts, but it makes the third confrontation pretty much impossible. The the third confrontation is simply this. It's a confrontation of intention. And that's one word that I could have picked out of, you know, 50. Um, Priority, impetus, aim, focus, motive. Those are all good words too, but I chose the word intention for a reason. First of all, let's read, starting in verse 18, the man's response. Right? We looked at the town's response, and it wasn't great. It was still it was marked by fear, and they asked Jesus to leave. And now we see the, ten, uh, the man's response, and this is what he says in verse 18. As Jesus was getting in the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. It's a great request, right? Jesus, let me just remain with you. I just want to be with you now. Like, you saved me. Like, let me, let me just be with you. Jesus says, no. That's my paraphrase. He doesn't actually say that. But in verse 19, he kind of does. Jesus did not let him, but he told him, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. They were all amazed. Now, Jesus surprises us once again, as if casting out a ton of demons wasn't already surprising enough. It was also surprising that he just got into the boat, right? Didn't fight the people on their fear. Their hearts were revealed, and so he just moved on. I think that's kind of surprising sometimes. And again, we have another surprise here where somebody actually begs Jesus, let me remain with you. And Jesus says, no, you need to go back home. You need to go back home, and you need to share what has happened for you today. This is a big deal. He says, go to the Decapolis, right? This bustling area of 10 cities, almost all of it Gentile, by the way. It was a Gentile region. And I think it's interesting that Jesus told this man to go back to his Gentile region and share what has happened. Because if you've Notice in Mark, even in Mark, previously he's healed and helped people in Jewish regions, and he tells them to stay hush about it. Now, and there's, without getting too far in the weeds here, there's a lot going on there, but the main reason this is the case is simply this, because Jesus knew what he was doing. He consulted with God all the time. He knew his mission. He knew the tendencies and cultures and, and particular strongholds of each people group. 
And in this case, Jesus saw that it was most fitting to have this man share his experience with the Gentile region, knowing that this man with this story in that region would lead to what? Verse 20, they were all amazed at what Jesus had done for him. This wasn't always the outcome in the Jewish regions, but for whatever, for whatever reason, in this area, what it led to was a widespread amazement as to who Jesus is. And you know what? Uh, you have a story as well. You have a history. You have your own case of your own depravity and your own sin and how Jesus has healed you and brought you out. You have your own encounter with the Savior of the world. You have freedom. And so you have got to understand that as a follower of Christ, it is not enough to just be a disciple. You have got to share and you have to make disciples as well. And for one of those pieces to go unnoticed, then the whole thing's incomplete. We have been charged to be followers of Christ and to help others become followers of Christ. And I think that this confrontation is one that every believer has, and it is the confrontation of intention, where you have to bring before the Lord with, with pain and conviction sometimes and let him deal with you in a way that reveals your primary purpose and aim in life. Is it him or is it something else? Is it him or is it something else? Is he going to be the greatest and most defining purpose of your life? Not only to just be a disciple and to abide in Christ and to follow him, but to also be actively helping and shaping and encouraging and helping others consider Jesus as well. To be a disciple and to make disciples. To be a follower and to help others follow. And for biblical support to this, John chapter 15, verses 5 and 8, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, and the one who remains in me, and I in him produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me, he says. And then in verse 8, he goes on to say, my father is glorified by this, that you produce fruit and prove to be my disciples. Right? We've got to abide in Christ. We must remain in him. We must pursue him. This is absolutely true. But that's not the whole deal. Because if you're actually remaining and abiding in Christ, then what is also going to be a part of your life is Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Listen, real disciples are the ones who make disciples. We're really not talking about two different things here. We're talking about one thing. And I think a lot of people think that they are disciples, but if they resist all the time of sharing and making disciples, then they're probably not real disciples. We're talking about one thing. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. I think a, the tendency for a lot of churchgoers is to just beg, with be, beg to be with Jesus, but to refuse to tell others about him when Jesus is probably like, hey, you need to go tell somebody about this. Like, if I'm really that big of a deal for you, you need to tell somebody. Our tendency is to just consume and to love. You know, like, we just, we want to be fed. We want to serve. We want to grow. 
We want people to think of us. We want a place for worship. Like, we love our Christian bubble where we just set everything up so that we can be with Jesus. And we, can, and we fill our lives with this so much so that we don't have a capacity or mind to care one ounce about other people who need him at a very real, empathetic, compassionate level. We have got to share. We have got to be followers, and we have got to help people follow. And if we are completely absent on one, then the whole thing's incomplete. Now, I know this church body, and I know many of you are, like, excellent at this. Like, you're really, really good. Like, truthfully, I I can see it in so many of you that this really is the full mission of who you are. Whether you're working out or you're at school or you're at, you know, practice or uh, you're just in your neighborhood, I know that you're prayed up, that you care for the hearts of your coworkers and neighbors and, and teammates and classmates. You make spiritual conversation happen and you ask Jesus regularly to provide opportunities for this conversation. So you're following Jesus, you're abiding in Christ, but you also see your work and your school and your gym and uh, all of these places as an opportunity to bring God glory to help others consider Christ in a way they never have. That's awesome. That is so, so good. And my guess is if that's you, then you've had some genuine encounters with your fear and your depravity. That's my guess. Because nobody does that if they're not overwhelmed by the grace of Christ. And nobody's overwhelmed at the grace of Christ if they haven't understood what they've been saved from. So if that's you, that's you, that's awesome. And you've also dealt with fear in your life that has helped you overcome whatever you needed to overcome to actually consider these parts of your life your mission field. So there's many out there who, who maybe aren't there yet. You have a deep struggle about this. It's not because you're not convinced. You are very convinced, but you have a tendency to overthink and to overanalyze, and all the whole thing's a bit overwhelming to you. My pastoral guess on this is that if the intention and the motive is kind of hard to live by, then there's probably some work to be done in the fear department. There's something holding you up that doesn't need to. There's something that's captivating your heart more than God. There's something that you're more afraid of than God himself. And for those of us who are currently operating out of a complete loss of this, this is brand new to us. I mean, we like Jesus, like we like, we like all of the stuff that's happening here, but like, geez, overcoming fear and like, uh, uh, you know, living with that being my full singular uh, uh, intention in life, like that's just like, that's like super Christian stuff. That's not for you. Then you're need today is probably just to be reminded of the immense grace of Jesus Christ, that he has saved you and your depraved heart from an eternity in hell, that he has done something for you that no other thing could possibly ever do, that he endured the full measure of your depravity so that you could have the full measure of his grace and forgiveness and life eternal. Man, if you're not shocked or in awe by that, then I got nothing for you. I got nothing for you. Nobody does. There's nothing anyone can do for you if you're not amazed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you're here and you are, then wonderful. God has done a work in your heart. He's done a work in your life. And maybe you're here, and for the first time, you're amazed at the fact that God would become man and bear your depravity so that you can have his life. You should be overwhelmed by that. It's the most crazy, wonderful thing in the entire universe. And if that's you today, then we invite you to just accept Christ, 
to not just let it be up here and all theoretical, but to just pray and ask God to actually save your soul, to say, like, I'm amazed by this, and I want it. Forgive me. I'm confessing my life to you. Like, forgive me. Save me, and let me live for you. Let me live for this, and he'll do it. So we're going to go into a time of just evaluating our confrontations today, of just seeing where we're at. Maybe you're here, and you're in that place of, Wrestling with your depravity, honestly, you're just a little out of touch. You're still religious, but like being in shock and awe of the grace of Jesus Christ, that's, that was a long time ago. You're not really there, and I pray that God would somehow use today to, to re-spark that, to re-spark your amazement at grace, to resist at all levels the leveling of people based on how things look and how you feel about yourself. Resist self-elevation. Resist all of these things. As I said, none of us are better than anyone. And this should give us compassion. If you're here and you're confronted with fear today, the question for you really is, where are you running? Are you trying to just do everything else by yourself? Or are you actually going to invite God into that process early and prove that you actually trust him, that you have a fear and reverence to him, that, that your humility is because of him? And let it drive you to his feet. And then for those of you here, you want him to be the singular, foremost intention in your life that consumes everything else. Praise God. That's a wonderful desire. Based on your life right now, what would you say that true and primary intention actually is? If it's not Jesus, what is it? If it's not Jesus, what is it? And then what needs to happen? And this is your prayer to him. What needs to happen for that to change? So here's a few minutes for you to just consult with the Lord and ask him to speak to you in this place, and then we'll close in prayer together in just a moment.
Father, would you amaze us uh, at your grace? Would you resensitize our hearts to the fact that we are broken, that we are sinful, that we have needed a Savior and still need a Savior every single day of our lives? Not because the work that you've done is insufficient, but because we're still human and we still struggle and we want to follow you further and more. There's always things that we need you for, God. Would you give us boldness to share your name, um, to make adjustments in our own life so that we might follow you all the more? And God, would you be praised and glorified by the work that you've done here today and by the decisions we make from here on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, not to distract um, from anything the Lord is doing, and I do pray that this is not the last moment that you think about these things and consider them. Um, but I do want to go ahead and just uh, offer a few highlights as we close our time. Um, we are always trying to just kind of let you know what's happening uh, beyond the walls of just a, this immediate space. Um, we do have uh, 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 our food pantry, and just thinking about the message today and um, just the, the reaching of others and using physical resources to, to bring about spiritual encouragement and, and to address the spiritual needs of people. Uh, food pantry is a great uh, place, and so please take a note of that. And um, um, you know, whatever their collection are, items are for this week, uh, take a note of that and just let's continue uh, to support them uh, in their work of reaching out to our community. And then also we have a new members class this evening at six o'clock. If you haven't signed up yet, that's fine. There's a black table back there where you can sign up. We'd love to have you. We'll have some snacks, some refreshments. Um, it's a great time to just get to meet you and for you to meet us, uh, for you to just know the heart of this place and then for you to make a decision and your time. Uh, there's a, this is a no pressure event, by the way on whether or not this might be the church home for you. And so we'll give you everything you need so you can make that decision, uh, either for here or somewhere else. And so um, we're excited about that. If you're here and you're a college student, we wanted to let you know, and I know it's like towards the end of the year already, uh, but if you plan on coming back to FBN next year, um, we love the idea of college students kind of making FBN their church home for a season. We know it's not going to be your forever church home unless God keeps you in Terre Haute for a while uh, following college. But we want you to know that we have our, our, our mind on you. We love college students here uh, at FBN. And if you want to just share in this relationship for a few years while you're in Terre Haute, we'd love to have that opportunity with you and to be your home church, um, or at least your temporary home church. And so we will talk about that tonight as well. Uh, we would love to have you there. With all that said, uh, we love you guys. Please go. Um, please uh, seek the Lord. Uh, let his compassion and let his empathy um, inspire yours. Uh, we love you guys. You're dismissed. Jesus for